To the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian and with Mike. And at Christmas time, Mike, we're very close to the end of the final full novel in our Aubrey Maturin Patrick O'Brien canon. Would you please catch us up with where we were earlier in Advent and where we are today as we are in the Christmas season? Ah, oh, thanks, Ian. Would be delighted to. Last week in Chapter 8, Midshipman Daniel became the surprise's acting master. The damaged ringle was taken to San Patricio for repairs. We met the Royal Society members on the converted Lisbon packet. Sir David Lindsay, Jack, and Stephen appeared to come to an understanding. And this time in Chapter 9 and the canon's first ever inter-chapter, maybe we can come back to that later, Two people visit the Lover's Hole, always glad to have them any time of year, especially at Christmas. Their greetings from home, visions of Christine, shifting local politics, a couple of naval actions, yet another burial at sea, and Jack has a plan. <gasps> a plan. Mike, this, this is the season for plans. I, I've, I've dropped the hint already. Well, let's say it outright. Um, if all of our plans have come to pass, then this episode is reaching you if you're listening along with us on Christmas Eve 2023. So in that case, we wish you all, uh, you and your families all, a really happy Christmas, depending on how they do present opening in your particular neighborhood. Uh, you might already be deep into the gift giving, or you might just be peeling the sprouts or just preparing your digestive system for what's to come. In any case, we hope you're having a peaceful time. We hope that you're appreciating, as you listen to this, a quiet moment away from the mincemeat pies and the port and the walnuts, and uh, that you're enjoying this chance to listen to the show. We're so glad that you're with us. If you want to try a little parlor game, sort of the Jane Austen thing to do for Christmas, Ian is going to be posting the documents for our Cards Against O'Brien game on the social channels. We hope you enjoy that too. Happy holidays. Indeed, indeed. So, Mike, here we are at the opening of Chapter 9, and it's a familiar setting. We've got a character writing to another character who's not with us, except this time it's Stephen writing to Sir Joseph Blaine. He's giving thanks to Sir Joseph Blaine for the speed of the letters that Blaine had sent, for Blaine's kindness in sending a chase across to Dorset to gather quick letters from home for Jack and Stephen to include in the official packet when it was coming out. Stephen acknowledges that the speed itself was aided by the Buenos Aires agents, native Indian runners, making quick progress along the pathways of the Andes, and also helped by the network of Republican Masonic lodges that had found the surprise at their southern port. And Mike, I was really curious about the Masonic lodges. I think this is the first and only time we're going to hear about the Masons in this chapter, but it's great. It's a nice little moment here. In any case, although all of this help was for sure helpful. The kindness Stephen attributes to Sir Joseph, quite right too. And Mike, it, it, it's always nice to see these moments of kindness and you know esteem between our characters. And I don't know how many more times in the canon now we're going to hear even indirectly about or from Sir Joseph Blaine, but he's, he's a great guy. We're going to miss him. 
Oh, definitely going to miss him. You're right, Ian. Absolutely. Well, in this report to Sir Joseph Stevens says that there's a separate junta for each considerable stretch of territory in Chile, each with different convictions, different desires for power. O'Higgins, the Supreme Director, and San Martin appear to be losing popularity as the Carrera brothers and Martinez de Rosas gain. Mm-hmm. Stephen promises to update this information as he learns more and gathers intelligence from Jacob. On the naval side, he reports that the 50-gun Republican frigate, renamed O'Higgins, is too old and decayed to be serviceable, as it turns out, and the Republican ports, the naval ports, are short of stores. Aubrey and Lindsay have reached a working agreement. The surprise and three Republican sloops in training are in Chiloé, a royalist port, hoping to cut out a notorious Spanish privateer, as Stephen is writing away here. And that's our cue to think of Jack Aubrey, right? Any any time a notorious privateer needs cutting out, you need Jack Aubrey on the scene. And not only that help, but also training is desperately needed by the Chilean Navy. Even though the, uh, the royalist army loyal to Spain had been defeated at Chacabuco, the Royalist Navy from Peru is really formidable. They have a new 32-gun frigate. They have competent professional seamen and officers. These Royalists still are hanging on to a southern naval base at Valdivia, which we're going to hear about some more, and the important northern island of Chiloé, as you mentioned, Mike. So along with the Spanish privateers, these Royalist naval types are threatening the Chilean Republic's trade. Now, this sounds like many and many a situation that we've encountered in the canon before. And it's great that we've got some support, even at a remote distance from Sir Joseph Blaine. Stephen goes on to talk about the personal side of the communication from Blaine right now. He reads this very short handwritten note that had been passed on, enclosed along with this letter from Sir Joseph Blaine to Stephen. The note ends from two very close friends at Wilcombe with their dearest love, Bridget and Christine. All together now. Oh. <laughs> it's really great. I mean, it's tantalizing. How how much of dearest love and very close friends can we attribute to Christine particularly? And if, if I'm Stephen Matrin, my heart is going to give a bit of a bound at this. It's a really, really nice moment. Now, Jacob knocks on the door. He's he's reporting that the younger O'Higgins, the one that Stephen had befriended in Peru, will be here tomorrow. They've decided that they're going to invite him to dinner. They want to get him involved in recruiting more agents across the border. Stephen wants Jacob, in particular, to have people watching on naval operations in Callao, given the rumours that they're hearing of unusual activity in the harbour there. And Stephen says, after they send Sir Joseph the encoded report on all these hunters, these alliances, and after they've met with younger Higgins, Stephen then will return to Valparaiso, hoping that by then Captain Aubrey will be back too from the expedition that he's on right now. So this is all sounding like the pieces are falling into place, Mike. That Jacob's going to stick around and meet with agents coming in from Lima and everybody's where they should be. Let's see what happens next. Well, Stephen is mounted a mare. He's on his way to Valparaiso. And as he's, you know, kind of going up and down the, the slopes, he sees the surprise out on the ocean with the privateer prize at her tail, as well as the three Republican sloops in company. Now, 
O'Brien tells us, you know, he's heading for Valparaiso. And as O'Brien writes, at this early stage, when the foreigners and nothing could have been more foreign in Chile than Jack Aubrey, fair haired, red faced, massive, his officers and most of the hands, they were looked upon as valued welcome allies. It was a pleasure to walk about Valparaiso with smiles, bows, and cheerful cries, Merry Christmas, good night on every hand. Ah. <laughs> Isn't it nice that on our Christmas episode, it's Christmas time in O'Brien land as well oh, as Stephen and Jack. <laughs> well, Stephen, when he arrives in town, is surprised to see the Royal Society members there, the ones that we had talked about that are on this Lisbon, old Lisbon packet. They talk about how fast their ship, the Isaac Newton, is and says that with its professional master and mate, they can sail day and night. Oh, yeah. fancy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Pretty, pretty, pretty high cotton here. Yeah. <laughs> William Reed also arrives at the tavern and the members ask Stephen if William ever feels the effects of electricity or static electricity through his hook. Stephen says they have a little conversation about the state of knowledge on electricity when Jack Aubrey arrives and tells them all about the taking of the Spanish privateer. <laughs> it's a really nice little moment. It's intriguing to think what was the state of public knowledge in kind of general educated people about electricity. And it was really just starting to take off. Obviously, we're many, many years from electric light and stuff, but these are the, this is the era when some of those early experiments in static electricity were happening. And uh, it's a nice little reference. Now, they're walking back to the inn, and Jack tells Stephen how well Poleskeeping had handled the very few casualties that the surprise had encountered when he was out on his expedition. He reports as well how well the Chileans had sailed their ships and how well they'd fought in the action. Jack says that he's going to remain then here training the Chileans rather than going back to Santiago. He was very tickled to note how pleased uh, and amused the Chileans were every time they learned a new skill and how they would laugh at their own kind of good fortune in acquiring a new skill like tying a knot. On the other hand, laughter is not always welcome. Stephen wants to complain about these members of the Royal Society. They're laughing. We've heard this from Stephen before, I think, Mike. He doesn't like it when people get all demonstrative and noisy and bombastic with their, with their expressions of emotion. And he doesn't like it when people laugh out loud. He thinks he's a little bit, uh, a bit uncivilized. And right. these people from the Royal Society have really got under his skin. He talks about them being like a parcel of excited young women, screeching aloud and agitating their persons and limbs. It's enough to make one retire to a monastery. And he wishes that they would laugh like men rather than eunuchs. So might, we're wow. getting this kind of picture of these uh, these noble scientists as being, being slightly pleased with themselves. A slightly sort of uh, sophomore-ish kind of tone, I think you might say. There you go. There you go. Well, Stephen remembers that he has this letter from home for Jack that came in Sir Joseph's packet. Uh, Jack reads it, and Stephen gives him some privacy, walks out about town. Returning, Stephen's got a big smile. While he was out walking, he discovered a small Catalan community dancing in the streets. The song is still playing in his head. Nice. But O'Brien writes that his smile is wiped clean away by the sight of Jack, so reduced with sorrow, deeply unhappy, red-eyed, and bent. 
Stephen often deplored the tendency of the English to display their feelings, their emotional weakness. But now looking sharply at his friend, he saw something quite out of the common run. And indeed, Jack stood up, blew his nose and said, forgive me, Stephen, I do beg pardon for this disgraceful exhibition. But Sophie's letter quite bowled me over. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we just had this comment about the society members. Now yeah. we've got this commentary yeah. about Jack and, you know, expressing emotion here. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving to have O'Brien back looking deeply into That's people's great. emotions, other people's reactions to people's emotions here. Any observations you had on these passages? Well, it's certainly striking that we get Aubrey you know, in, in tears at this moment. And you sort of wonder, knowing a little bit about O'Brien's situation, how he's still early in the stages of being without Mary, whether he is talking about his discomfort at being seen by other people when he's uh, in the grip of, you know, an emotional response or feeling a bit of a bit of grief, or maybe he's also reflecting on the on the emotions that he's seen in other people. And by this time of his life, I'm sure he's seen people in uh, in all states and conditions. And it's it's a sad little moment. I don't think I start to feel terribly bad for Jack. I think he's just sentimental in a way, at seeing how far away he is from home. And but we, we talked in the last chapter about missing somebody and wanting to be in proximity with them. And Jack's Jack's getting that pretty hard just now. Now he's not only saying I miss the wife and I miss the children. He's actually saying how much he's admiring Sophie's conduct. He talks about her being brave and good, never a harsh word. She, he says, had brought the family and the home situation alive for him. And that's what's really knocked him sideways. He goes on and says, she said such kind things about Christine and your Bridget. Lord, it quite unmanned me. Strutting about on the other side of the world, leaving everything to them. I had no idea how attached I was. And again, Mike, I wonder if those are words in the brain of uh, of Patrick O'Brien. I had no idea. Yeah. how attached I was. Wow. And and wow. to come back to a theme that we've been talking about many, many times over these books now, you know, it, it's, a, it's another example of perspective. Jack realizes for a minute where he is in the world and what's going and what's happening with other people. All this little, this little bit of insight and this little bit of empathy, which is a kind of insight that sometimes is hard for Jack to grasp, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, boy, I, I, I resemble that remark. It's, you know, I remember living most of my working life on a plane somewhere, yeah. tens of thousands of feet in the air, heading somewhere across the world, having a stewardess or a flight attendant from time to time go, are you all right, sir? And all it is, is me thinking, oh God, I'm leaving them all back at home to deal with everything. And yeah. you know, here, here is Jack. So it's always amazing to me how much the world back then reminds me of the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> and people back then remind me of people just now, no matter how different we are. Uh, well, Stephen is not going to chance anything. So he, he gives Jack a quick medical check, you know, with his emotions so much out of control. We better, you know, take his pulse, check his tongue. <laughs> and, and then he reminds Jack that they may be very close to the liberation of Chile. And having done that, Jack can bring Sophie and anybody else he wishes to this delightful, healthy country with new sights and admirable wine. <laughs> it's like, Jack, Jack, you gotta control yourself, you know? <laughs> right. But then, as Jack's doctor, he says he thinks he can assure him and prescribes for both of them thick beef steaks and a large amount of burgundy for each of them before a soothing draft that he has prepared before going to bed. <laughs> 
Isn't it great? My, my, oh yeah, my friend the doctor prescribed steak and good red wine. I love him. <laughs> just, uh, Stephen making his his medical skills available in a particular way. I, I can yeah. think of plenty of other times when he would have said, you know, gruel and a low diet and uh, and a lightly boiled fowl is enough for you. But he's going, no, no, my friend, what you need right now is steak and some, some decent nice. red. So Stephen checks on the various people in the various sick berths the following morning and then starts to ride back. He's riding and walking just according to the steepness of the trail that he's on. And he begins to have this very hmm, almost transcendental experience. He He's, of course, just come from seeing how affected Jack is by awareness of the distance from the woman that he loves. And Stephen is very affected still by his perception of how far he is from Christine. And so as he's out on a trail, perhaps also helped by being up high, perhaps also helped by, I don't know what he might have taken, but he starts to see light. He sees translucent images. He sees different aspects of Christine interposed on the landscape ahead of him. And if there was a movie, this would be like cue a, a, a tinkly harp, glissando and you know soft focus and all the other kind of cliches of a little bit of a dream sequence here he sees perceptions it says perceptions of christine moving across a wall of rock and this triggers in him really startlingly clear memories memories of how when she was watching a a bird or reading music or playing music as the text says here she would be entirely apart remote self-contained and then how she would be wholly with him when he moved or spoke. Two strikingly different beings, and the delight in her company, as he delighted even in the memory of it, seemed to him essential happiness, fulfilment. Mm. Of course, he was a man, quite markedly so, and would have liked to know her physically, but that was secondary, a very remote stirring compared with gazing at this phantasm, this now remarkably clear and sharply defined phantasm against the rock face. And that's a very, very affecting moment. I was, I was right there with him. And he, he, he continues on the journey here. He's reflecting now on what is it about Christine that he's so besotted with until as he's kind of interrupted out of this reverie by a mule train coming the other way, Stephen has to pull over. His mare guides him into a little passing nook so they can all get by. And he realizes then how far his reverie's taken him. He and the mayor have been walking along the edge of a sheer appalling precipice of this tiny narrow trail. He's not been aware of it at all. <sighs> so continuing on, the illusion now is gone because he's been brought back to the real world. However hard he works with his imagination, and presumably, Mike, he didn't have any, any laudanum handy to help things along. Right. None of those things can help to recall this. And it's uh, it's gone. The phantasm is disappeared on he goes him and the mule up and down on their long journey until at the end of the weary day they get to santiago well arriving there stephen finds an agitated jacob at the end mm -hmm. two separate agents from lima and Callao have reported that the peruvian viceroy has decided to invade chile after an initial naval attack on valparaiso however they find that they haven't been able, this Peruvian Navy, to get the naval stores they need to start the invasion at this moment. Apparently, a lot of the merchants are thinking, okay, this is great demand. I'm going to hold these things back. We'll wait till the prices go up. And they eat dinner 
And Stephen prepares some coca so that his mind is not dulled by the meal. So they sort of talk more about what to do about this. And he asks Jacob if he knows of instances of people having a different reaction to coca at different altitudes, particularly at high altitudes. And he says he's noticed that the porters carrying things high in the Andes often take very high doses, and he hadn't observed any ill effects in the porters. Jacob says, well, all he's ever noticed is the effect of what he calls compulsive habituation. (laughs) In other words, yeah, get addicted. All right. Well, Jacob reflects, it may depend on the type of coca. And he has known people treated with coca for asthma or migraines that report hallucinations whose strength and frequency varied with the height, not the exertion, but with altitude. So Stephen, and and I'm wondering, is he perhaps wondering about these visions of Christine today, says, but I do not like the notion of a vegetable providing my beatific vision. If it chooses to sharpen my intelligence to allow me to multiply seven by 12, well and good, but the sacred emotions, no. And it's fascinating to me to see Stephen drawing the line here about yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when, when this laudanum, when this cocoa, when whatever I'm you know binging on at the moment messes with my beatific visions. No, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's still got his own perspective on his use of drugs, and that's all fine, and it's right. helping him, and it's creative. Oh, it's good stuff. Stephen says they need to get back to Captain Aubrey immediately with this intelligence that Stephen now has. He's dreading going back on the same road again. So Jacob tells Stephen that if you could overcome your prejudice about mules, I can show you a quicker and easier road. And this is a nice little needle that Jacob has about Stephen, that he's perhaps a little bit irrational. And Stephen says, okay, I'll I'll take my medicine. I'm willing to try mules if you can get them muzzled and if you can find a good, well-qualified muleteer to guide us here. And make it so this all comes to pass they get the guide they get the mules and as quick as that they're back in valparaiso there in valparaiso we get to spend some more time with some of these other new characters bernardo o'higgins the supreme director and his hand-picked troops have arrived this is causing some disarray in the lodgings ashore and we get a little hint of that um, through the person of killick whom Stephen finds at their hotel, super upset because the soldiers had almost taken the doctor's room. Aubrey himself is out day sailing. He's taken O'Higgins across the bay in the Ringle, and they're going to have dinner aboard the Surprise tomorrow night, although Killick rather cynically says, if we survive. Stephen is a little bit upset, I think, that Jack's not there to receive this intelligence immediately, this intelligence that Stephen's brought at great speed. Killick reports that the rival... Lindsay is out at sea, protecting Republican trade from privateers, and that meanwhile there are 400 troops in the town here who are on their way to Concepcion. So we've gone from high up in the mountains, Stephen's you know, phantasmic reflections on Christine, into a real everyday world packed with life and people and chaos and tumult. The, the tumult has a particularly personal angle for Stephen because he bumps into somebody that we very quickly learn is his cousin, Eduardo. Eduardo, a relative of Stephen's godfather, and Eduardo is right there at the hotel. The next day, Stephen takes a second look and sees that this guy's wearing a uniform. He's in the uniform of a colonel. 
And it turns out that Eduardo, Eduardo Valdez, has been in company with O'Higgins and Jack Aubrey and is now full of the praises of Jack Aubrey. He says, O'Higgins, the Supreme Director, had taken to Jack immediately and on they talked, the two of them, until Jack and O'Higgins, the Supreme Director, returned. And by the way, we might talk more about the connection to real world in a second, but it's absolutely, I think, fair that uh, Thomas Cochran, who is the model for Jack Aubrey in many ways, did indeed really, really impress the real world Bernardo O'Higgins, and they became quite close. Well done. Anyhow, Stephen finally gets his moment to brief Jack Aubrey and Bernardo O'Higgins and Eduardo Valdez on the new intelligence that he has. The new intelligence is about a decision that's been made to invade once the Chilean men of war in Valparaiso have been destroyed. And therefore, there's a high likelihood that these invaders will need to head to Valdivia to obtain needed naval stores first. So we've got an invasion by the loyalists, royalists. And guess what? There's not a moment to lose. Jack suggests an immediate reconnaissance mission. Hang on, says O'Higgins. How about the preparedness of the Peruvian Navy? And Stephen says, well, to my knowledge, they have this one heavy frigate, the 50-gun Esmeralda, but it's not ready to take to sea yet. O'Higgins thinks that the Lima Ministries will take at least 10 days to finalise any kind of decision. So they've got time to make their move. And he suggests that when he dines aboard the surprise the following day, they should then do as Jack suggests and slip out of port so they can look into Valdivia before sunset tomorrow. And Mike, we mentioned the real world timeline. Esmeralda was a, a real vessel that was part of the royalist fleet, if you like, in this area at the time. Uh, the real Esmeralda was a ship of 44 guns. She was built, of, of all the O'Brien places, she was built in Port Mahon on Menorca. Oh, nice. And in 1817, she was sent over to Peru by the Spanish to guard their interests in and around Peru itself. This all was after the defeat of the royalists at Chacabuco that we heard about a couple of pages ago. Now, O'Brien isn't precisely following the chain of real people and real events and real ships, not in the way that he did in Mauritius Command, for example, but he's clearly equipping himself pretty readily with times and places and locations and ships and harbours that were part of the real world of Cochrane's expedition in support of uh, independence in Chile. Well, O'Higgins does come aboard for dinner. And during that dinner, the crew starts to get pretty concerned. They'd worked overtime, sort of day and night, to prepare this ship, to have it just absolutely stunning to receive O'Higgins. And when he'd come aboard, they had a roaring of guns. But during dinner, somebody orders them to start bringing the barge aboard. Wait a minute. We got to have the barge yeah. to take him back again. And to start returning the ship to seagoing order. They can't understand why they'd be unpicking and stowing the man ropes with their guests still aboard. It seems, as they say, most unusual, reprehensible, but not downright insane or even worse, unlucky. Sounds like, you know, <laughs> Hermione, you know, you could be you could be killed or worse, expelled. Yeah. <laughs> I love this bit of minor, minor, minor bead clutching being done here by the sailors. <gasps> they unhitched the man ropes. What a thing. What's going whatever's gonna happen next? Right, right. Well, they calm down somewhat when Hansen tells his new buddy, Awkward Davis, I love this relationship yeah, that's involving in the story here, that actually it was the captain's orders. Oh, 
says awkward you know oh the captain's on well we're okay then <laughs> if jack said that. well shortly after all becomes clear when they learn that they are in fact to steal away on the ebb and carry the supreme director and his mate with them so uh we've got a bit of a mission here going on mm. and I love the reassurance, the very low-key reassurance. They've gone from low-key, slightly bothered by this deal with unhitching the man ropes to being low-key, happy again. Ah, Captain Aubrey's sailing away on the ebb tide, you know, slightly uh, slightly stealthily. This sounds like a mission. There's something going on here. There's, there's prize money or espionage or something happening here. Now, O'Higgins and Eduardo cousin Eduardo, are two soldiers who know the value of sleep. So they turn in just as Jack is showing Midshipman Daniel, the, now the acting master, and Hansen, and another midshipman by the name of Shepard, the moons of Jupiter, and how they can be used as a, a, as a guidance for timing, how they can help to, to determine longitude in, in long-distance navigation. Really, really nice little moment. Again, Jack passing on what he knows to the youngsters and enjoying it. And the next day, O'Higgins is surprised that they haven't traveled further. And he spots how relatively not that far they've come. And he asks Jack about it. Then he realizes that Jack is actually staying offshore. He's timing their arrival for the last hour of the sun as had been requested. So he's taken the pace off of the ship. Very, very smart. And it's a nice moment that O'Higgins spots this and then corrects himself as he realizes that Jack is a person who knows about these things. He's figured out his times and his distances. Uh, they, they, they decide to have a bit of a, a bet here. Jack says, I'll give you 10 guineas for any church or charity you can name if you don't see Valdivia in the hour before sunset. I know Higgins says he'll do the same himself if Jack succeeds. And these are two men, fairly mature, who like a bit of gambling. And maybe 10 guineas to them. Sounds like something that in a state of bravado you might offer as a stake for a casual personal bet. But that's not how the crew are thinking of it, right? No, and, and I love how O'Brien does this. You know, I, I think O'Brien's about to put the crew in mind, as you say, Ian, of, oh my gosh, 10 guineas, this is important. But O'Brien remembers, well, wait a minute, some of these guys just sent home like two years worth of salary because of prize money that they won. But he says, ah, enough time has passed that even though the surprises had made a good deal of prize money, most of them had found ingenious ways to get rid of it by now. And as he writes, their old sense of values had returned. Knowing that 10 guineas are at stake inspires them to show the same zeal that they would show if a chase were in sight. Yeah. Again, warm my heart to hear, ah, a chase in view, a chase in sight. Yeah, <laughs> a little, little constant refrain through the canon. Yeah. All orders, therefore, are anticipated. Everybody knows what to do. They're doing it perfectly. And at five o'clock, they hear Jack pointing out Concepcion on the starboard quarter. And they see that they are, in fact, arriving a little early at this destination. So Jack's got the bet well in hand here. Well done, crew. <laughs> yeah, very good. Ten guineas safe in Jack Aubrey's pocket. Good to hear. Right. Now, Jack suggests that the commander and his colonel cousin Eduardo, practice climbing up into the top so they can prepare for the closer view of Valdivia that they'll get when they're sailing closer into shore. The two of them reply that they should be very happy. Well, there's there's machismo and bravado, two, two words that Spanish men know very well. And then there's the reality of them thinking what well, it's really going to be like when I'm all the way up there. So the text says, 
they concealed their happiness quite remarkably (laughs) as they climbed up and up with a wooden stoicism until they reached the modest height of the main top. And Jack, who I I think has got a tin ear for anybody else's vague suggestion of being uncomfortable with heights, says, oh, we can go higher. We can go up, you know, to the cross trees. And they're going, no, 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 it's fine. I can see perfectly well from here. They do ask then for telescopes to be sent up. (laughs) And they talk about how there might be a purely involuntary muscular trembling if we were to go up and down repeatedly. So perhaps it's best if we sit here and let let our hands get steady which is putting a very, very fine coat of dressing on uh, their hands are shaking because they're afraid of heights. Jack has finally twigged onto this, so he goes back down on deck, saves them the embarrassment of having him with them, and has Midshipman Hansen carry up not only the telescopes, but some charts and some panoramas of the coastline so they can look at what it is that they're looking at and identify the key features here. Yeah, I, I, I love this. How They're like, okay, no, we're not going to go back down and climb up again in a half hour. We're, we're staying right here. I'm, I'm not letting go of this. Right. Well, after the time elapses and they're heading in, Jack goes back up and they all search the port with their telescopes. They see a few small vessels and a trading brig and a little moderate activity on the far side of the fortification there. The colonel says he thinks that they could take the place with 250 men. Jack thinks that's kind of a small number for all these fortified walls and the many guns, but he believes him. And they asked Jack's opinion. And Jack says he's been watching the outermost part of the fortress and believes if the soldiers are not uncommonly seasoned and courageous, it could be taken with a two-sided attack. And if the fort itself is taken, then the two arcs of the semicircle would find it hard to cooperate and mount a counterattack. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're all discussing this, and then they tell Jack a bit about the men they know to be stationed there. And as they're discussing that, they come around to Jack's point of view here. And O'Higgins begs Captain Aubrey to carry them back to Concepcion quickly and ask if, by the way, the ship could hold the 250 men. So it's like, let's go get them. By the way, can you carry them? Well, Jack says between the surprise and the wrangle, they could, uh, you know, they'd be pretty packed in, but they could. But he says he could contribute at least 100 thoroughly experienced seamen experienced in naval attacks. And they are most grateful. So not only are we coming over to help teach your people and carry your people and everything else, we're contributing 100 of our own lives to your cause. And that's uh, that's pretty cool. They're coming yeah. together here. And it's great. We knew from the very beginning that cousin eduardo and o'higgins were really impressed with jack aubrey but he's just piling impressive feet on on impressive feet here he's putting as you say mike he's putting men of his own into this attack plan he's brought them perfectly timed to a position where they can get really great intelligence from reconnaissance it's it's working out really well jack is flying high so as they head back it's to jack that they turn to say what do you think should be the plan when we go about attacking both by sea from ships and by land with amphibious soldiers and sailors. Jack suggests that they should head back down and talk about it and talk it over. And this is a nice moment to remind ourselves that these two brave and powerful influential men, these great soldiers, are still up in the main top and they are feeling a little bit giddy about the heights. Jack suggests that Colonel Valdez should go first with Jack's coxswain guiding his feet. And, and maybe this is offering a little bit of face-saving for O'Higgins. Jack says to him, Now, Colonel, this is the lubber's hole. It is the lubber's hole. Welcome, gentlemen. 
This is the lover's hole, and if you lower yourself through it, powerful hands will guide your feet to the horizontal cords that act as steps. And down they come, through the lover's hole. Amen. And now that they're on deck, Jack can see but very unfeigned gravity and fear on their faces. He suggests they take a rest, look over the charts again, and we're going to talk about this plan over supper. So, Mike, it's funny. This day is going really, really fast. This day, this couple of days. It reminds me a bit of that first breathless couple of days when Jack took command of the Sophie, a master and commander, and he was in and out and sails up and sails down and try this and try that and back into harbour, pick somebody up, back out again. It's that kind of mood here, and all the movement around seems to be kind of exhausting. So I'm wondering if, just like our heroes, we should take a break for a spot of something and maybe come back after a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from break. Hope all your Christmas and holiday activities are going well. You've had a refreshing cup of something. As we join after supper, the two men looking seriously cheerful. So these guys who came down so grave looking cheerful now. And Jack tells him that he's checked with the gunner and with the ship's stores and materially his plan is feasible. He says that if they can get from O'Higgins troops at Concepcion the best, the ones with the best courage, agility, and freedom from seasickness, and return before dawn, they could land the men experienced in mining, blowing up, and destroying gun emplacements at Cala Alta. And then after the boats return, the surprise will sail on and then bombard the fort without firing on the great gate leading to the mole while the soldiers and seamen advance, you know, kind of advance back up to the fort there. The seamen will fire rockets and stink pots into the embrasures, you know, trying to make it really noxious there, and mine all the emplacements with guns in them here. The soldiers will keep up a steady fire, shrieking like fiends. And they have a little conversation (laughs) on the side with Stephen. What's a fiend? Oh, it's a demon. It's like, oh, oh, okay, good. Well, Jack says that he's leaving the northern wall untouched so that these unseasoned, inexperienced defenders that Colonel Valdez has described can run out of the bombardment and along the mole, and then the ship can pepper them with grape or you know, force them to escape up the town. In any event, it's going to get them hopefully quicker out of these gun emplacements, leaving that fort vacant for them. Yeah. It's also going to mean if the gun emplacements are vacated first before the infantry move out, that the ships, or rather at least the ship, the surprise is going to be safe there anchored offshore. So it sounds like a great plan. The Colonel and O'Higgins agree that it's a great plan. They ask Jack to get them back to Concepcion as quickly as possible because they need to pick up these troops and then make their move. Jack's got his own plan now for further augmenting this attack and for a bit of deception as well. They need to restore the surprise's main mast because that has been struck down so that they didn't show themselves on the horizon as they rolled into Valdivia there. They're going to send the Ringle ahead into Concepcion with orders from O'Higgins so that the troops can be waiting to board 
straight away upon their arrival. And this is the kind of amphibious coordination with soldiers that Jack Aubrey really likes. Like Everybody's on it, and they're moving, and they're planning ahead, and it's all going to go smoothly, we hope. The sailing conditions are great, and they're right back there quickly with the troops. They get them on board. The troops break out in song on the way. Plans are reviewed. The two officers who know Valdivia are going to point out the location of the storehouse and of the treasury at the end of the mole, so everyone's got that marked up on their maps. Shortly before dawn, then, everyone is fed before the Ringle and the Surprises boats take the soldiers and seamen into shore at Valdivia in the darkness. And, and Mike, th- this, this is O'Brien, and this is also getting close to the end of the book, so we're, we're making quite a rapid progress into the action here. We, we really are. It's amazing. Sometimes when we spend, it seems like forever, describing a little, a little scene, now it's like, oh, they're back, keep going, keep going, right. And all of a sudden, you know, the surprise is 500 yards from the fort. They fire a ranging shot and then start rolling fire as they see lights starting to come on on the top of the fort. Jack moves the ship 100 yards closer so that they can see the gatehouse and the mole and fire accurately. And before half the top lights are on in the fort, there's a violent explosion that shakes the back of the fortress, followed by musket fire and three more explosions deeper in the fort. So the folks on land have arrived and are doing damage here. The surprise sends a crossfire into the shattered center of the fort as the mining and musketry increase. Jack makes sure that the cannons do not touch the gatehouse as as planned. And lo and behold, musketry from the fort decreases as the mining inside increases. Jack has Daniel lay the ship into the mole. Cutlasses, pistols, and boarding axes are served out. Here we are. We're, We're right in the thick of it. I love it. The gatehouse doors burst open and a dense crowd of men run out. This is all going pretty much according to the plan that Jack and the other leaders had uh, had put together. The cannons are reloaded with grape, just like they planned, and they fire half a dozen rounds before the ship grounds up against the dolphin of the mole, against the little harbour pier extension that's out there, and makes fast. The larboard watch charges at the fleeing men. The soldiers who've been behind the fort join the chase. And now there's a general exodus of these defenders, the royalist defenders who are running away from the forces friendly to Jack and to to, uh, O'Higgins. Surely, gasped Stephen as he ran, it is very strange that the zeal of the pursuers should be greater than that of the prey. And we learn that this was indeed strange, but it was true. The men running away are quickly caught up and joined by men from the other forts until the ones not knocked down or caught, run clean away up into the town, leaving the port and all its naval equipment to the victors. And like th- this is the key moment here because the thing that they were all short of as these invaders are threatening from the north was supplies and money, arms and powder. They've got this extraordinary treasury of supplies and resources now available to them. There's firearms, there's gunpowder, there's ammunition, there are medicine chests. They make their way to the treasury where seamen, running back to the ship for their tools, take off the armoured doors and there are four large chests of silver and a moderate chest of gold. And I, I don't know how much money Stephen had brought with him, but the, the, his war chest has literally and figuratively been expanded many times in size. There's one particular Chilean soldier who decides that he thinks that they should share it all out right away 
And he gets a pretty brutal end because as several other men start to join him in this opinion, Bernardo O'Higgins shoots him dead. So we've got this feeling of they were on the verge of indiscipline, on the verge of kind of mutiny and looting, but O'Higgins has restored order. It's brutal, but I think it's the kind of thing that Jack Aubrey will be nodding along to here, Mike. It was my original managing partner's theory of how do you manage people in a, in a group? <laughs> well, shoot one <laughs> from time to shoot time. Shoot one randomly and, and everybody calms down, he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Captain Aubrey, again, being the gracious gentleman that he is, suggests to O'Higgins that the, the natural place for the chest is Valparaiso. It's like, okay, no, we're not going to share this out. You know, we're going to send this to the Republic. You guys can take care of this. I'll, I'll put the chest aboard the surprise. And these two large smacks, he calls them, in the harbor can transport the naval materials back. So smacks, you know, you know it was uh, with all this talk of coke and everything. I thought, oh, now, now we've got some <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no, that's not it. It's- no, a, a, a smack, let's get technical for a minute. Uh, was a merchant vessel, originally a large cutter-rigged merchant vessel. It later became a word that described a small vessel of any kind, especially a two-masted coastal vessel for fishing or for merchant shipping. So a fishing, fishing smack is a sort of general purpose word that you, we've heard of a few times. Anyhow, after the hands move the chests over to the surprise with some, some improvised cranes, the zeal of everybody around, especially the soldiers, starts to flag. So we've had... <laughs> Jack Aubrey got them there by leadership and kind of, uh, you know, force of personal magnetism. Bernardo O'Higgins kept them there at gunpoint. Stephen's going to have to come up with something new to keep everybody on focus. And what does Stephen turn to? He turns to the thing that he uses to manipulate his own attitude and self well-being, which is the booze. So he gets Jack to open a barrel of this Chilean liquor called Aguadiente, eau de vie, or a kind of coarse kind of brandy made from sugarcane. And they have all the men line up in two lines. They, they go past Jacob. He hands them a cup from the barrel. They move on to Stephen, who gives them their dessert, which is a dose of prime coca leaf. <laughs> so all of a sudden, right, but what with this and the threat of you know death at gunpoint, everybody shapes up real quick and uh, good humor returns. The naval supplies that are here are all quickly disappearing into those two smacks that had been chartered with help from the gold chest. And it seems like in a twinkling, our business in Valdivia is done. Here are the final words of the chapter. Cousin, said Colonel Valdez, embracing him. He means Stephen. And they standing alone in the five-acre yard. That was a glorious victory. A most glorious victory. And there's the end of chapter nine. But Mike, we're not done yet, right? No, no, wait, there's more. Right. It, it's so funny. And I, you know, I was listening to this with Patrick Tall the first go round, and he said, you know, it's end of chapter nine. Interchapter. Like, interchapter? What? What's an interchapter? And I look back and never before in the history of the canon have we had an interchapter. And, and it sounds so unpatrick O'Brien-like for there to be a piece of text that didn't sit in the structure or the standard length of a chapter. 
and you kind of start to wonder. We, we've asked a couple of our friends for any ideas. Um, we've had a look on the gun room archives to see if the gun room ever came up with anything. The answer seems to be no. If any of you out there have an inkling of how come we have an interchapter sitting in between chapter nine and chapter 10, let us know. I mean, Mike, it, it seems like there could have been some kind of a, a mistake that needed correcting either a proofing mistake or an editing mistake or a binding and page setting mistake. But I don't think there's an authoritative word on that, is there? I I haven't been able to find one, but it it is clear. You know, we we did the little thought experiment of, you know, what if you ended chapter nine and opened chapter ten? Would it work? And it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Yeah. While not a lot happens, you have to set up ten a little bit more than we've set it up with nine, right. which we do yeah. now in the inner chapter. Well, so once and only we have an inner chapter from Patrick O'Brien, and. It's a chapter in all other respects because it opens with Stephen writing to Christie, like so many of the other chapters. Um, he's writing about their famous victory in Valdivia, as he describes it. And he says that, in essence, what they'd done was to drive the royalists out and secured an immense stock of naval stores and their treasury. And, and by the way, Mike, let, let's just talk again about the real-world timeline. That's a pretty good one-sentence summary of what happened in the real-world capture of the port of Valdivia in 1820, captured by a Chilean force commanded by Thomas Cochran and a Chilean um, soldier by the name of Jorge Boschev. If you go and read the account of what Cochran actually did, the, the harbour of Valdivia is big and complex in terms of its layout, so what Cochran and the, the teams had to do took longer and was more complex, but it was, in essence, the same. But maybe for the sake of getting through chapter nine quickly, O'Brien gave Aubrey and his followers uh, an easier and quicker victory than than the Cochrane crew encountered. Stephen continues writing to Christine, saying they returned to cheering crowds, fireworks, bullfights in their honor, um, and that they did not lose any people, and that the ship's crew is absolutely elated by the coming prize money. You know, they expect this stuff to be shared out quickly, and they can't wait here. Stephen says that he's caught their contagious happiness and has indulged himself in an emerald, a glorious gemstone here, from one of Jacob's jewel merchant friends. He says he's sending it to Christine by way of Sir Joseph Blaine as a token of his esteem and as a trifling return for the sight of the great heron that she had provided. So, so far he's given his watch. Now he's giving an emerald. <laughs> Stephen, not, not a very subtle guy here. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not like he's dressing up or disguising how he feels <laughs> about what right. he has to do with Christine. <sighs> and uh, he's he's got a reason for it. Like he can rationalize it that it's because of the, the the sighting of the giant heron. But come on, Stephen, we can read you like a book, and we bet she can too. Right. Anyhow, Stephen pauses in his writing here, and he's concerned that Jack has not yet returned. It's not like Jack to be late. I'm, I'm reading this, asking myself, hang on a second, return from where? And is this interchapter actually all a little bit broken and out, out of place? No, it's not. O'Brien's just serving up information selectively to us to keep our attention going. The Indian runner who's going to carry this packet back isn't going to leave until just before dawn. So there is still some time. 
Stephen continues his letter, saying that their joy at this victory was now diminished and is in fact not far from grief because the popular jubilation over the victory of Valdivia had given way to increasing jealousy and resentment, partly because the victory was seen as being won by the, the English, the hereditary enemies of the Spanish, and partly because O'Higgins himself, it turns out, doesn't have a great reputation. He is disliked, even hated, by many of the leading men in the various hunters for curbing their pretensions, for his love of law and order, and for his opposition to a dominant church. Mm. So the sweet taste of victory has started to turn a bit sour here. Jacob is off learning to what extent this resentment has started to bring together unity amongst these different hunters who are now showing themselves against O'Higgins. The treasure hasn't been shared out yet. Hmm. The seamen, therefore, have not been paid. Hmm. And Stephen has even been treated with open rudeness in the streets of Valparaiso. So, Mike, in the space of a chapter, we've gone from Merry Christmas, lovely to see you, ha, 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 to whatever rude gestures Chileans give to Stephen Matchery. So... O'Higgins and his friends and the guards have all retired to Santiago or beyond. He's got no news of them. And now we learn where Jack Aubrey's gone. Because to top all of this, Sir David Lindsay, the other British commander on the scene, had been challenged to a duel by one of his own officers. And this duel is taking place as Stephen is sitting writing here. Yeah, this is it's kind of amazing. And, and as we'll learn in a minute, and Jack is Sir David Lindsay's second in this yeah. duel. So he's off there. And, and that's why Stephen's like, why is he not back yet? What's going on here? Well, Stephen, all of a sudden, you know, is looking at what he's written and he says, oh, my gosh, you know, I, he realizes he's written far too much in an open, uncoded letter to Christine of all. And he starts to draw a line around the part that he absolutely has to take out, put into code, you know, only for Sir Joseph's eyes. When Hansen comes in to tell him that the captain has sent word that Lindsay has been hit and there's no hope. Uh, Stephen, Ooh. you know, quickly heads to the scene, confirms Lindsay's death. Jack tells Hansen to get four stout hands and a stretcher to carry Lindsay back to the surprise to be buried in Navy fashion. Uh-huh. Lindsay's Chilean friends are uneasy, saying, wait, wait a minute. The prefect of the port has to see the body and approve the burial. With grave emphasis, Stephen tells them in Spanish that this is the custom, the ancient naval custom, and they back off as Lindsay is carried away with all the military men and sailors saluting. But one local man tells Stephen that this will offend the prefect extremely. Ooh, now, a moment of jeopardy here for Stephen. He's pretty sure that they should just get on and pay their respects to David Lindsay. The prefect, the local head person, is clearly somebody that they should perhaps take account of. So the burial goes ahead in any case. The surprise is sailed out beyond the mole into 20-fathom water. Jack says the ritual words. By the way, Mike, yet again in this book is Jack saying the, the words of the service for uh, internment at sea. And over the side goes Sir David Lindsay, before, as it says here, before the assembled crew with the full ceremony and honours due to his former rank. Mm. And Mike, I, I would never have guessed when we heard about David Lindsay four or five chapters ago, when we met him two chapters ago, I would never have guessed that the outcome would be 
he's dead and Jack is giving him the full respects to his, you know, to, to his departure from this world. It's, it's a funny old story, the way this has turned out. It is. And we all might remember from earlier in the canon that traditionally when a ship has a, a dead commanding officer aboard, the yards and the rigging are all put kind of askew. And it seems that that was what had been done with surprise. We don't hear about it being set that way, but we hear about it being set back to normal, taking down the formal signs of mourning. And I think that's what they mean. Jack returns the surprise to the harbour, selecting a place that allows them to get out to sea in almost any kind of a breeze. So he's ready to make a rapid getaway. And privately, Jack tells Stephen that he's seen things around the town that make him uneasy. He suspects that he, Stephen, has seen even more. That's absolutely correct, says Stephen. I have. I'm still waiting for information from Jacob so that I know whether I should already give you official advice to withdraw from the political enterprise um, and return to pure hydrography. So it seems like this this mission has almost fallen apart. Stephen thinks to himself then, I think he seems to have written it off already, does Stephen. There's some really nice flora and fauna this time of year in the, in the Chonos Archipelago, which is where he would quite like to go next. And anybody who's seen the Master and Commander movie knows how that's going to work out, right, Mike? Right, right, right. Well, in the cabin drinking tea, Jack tells Stephen how the young fellas he's been training show every sign of becoming first-rate seamen. Now, he says, since I only foolishly turned over the treasury to the authorities, we've had full use of all the naval stores and have met all the surprises needs. We're completely decked out and re, you know, resupplied here. And Jack wants to attack Callao and cut out the Esmeralda. Now, he says, I talked over this plan with Lindsay, you know, bef- before the duel, obviously. And Lindsay thought the plan was impossible, impossible to attack a fortress and a 50-gun frigate with just the surprise and the ass supporting. But now Jack thinks it can be done with surprise alone. He asks Stephen if he likes his plan. And Stephen replies, and I, I love this reply. <laughs> I think this is great. My dear, I'm tolerably good at carrying out a suprapubic cystotomy. You are an expert in maritime warfare. Your opinion in the first case would not be worth a straw, nor would mine in the second. If you are content, I am content. <laughs> this, is, yeah, this has been so for so long, this relationship between Jack and Stephen. And in this case, it's like there's no political advice on this. You You know whether you can win this battle or not. Well, Jack hears that, but but he continues to kind of justify his plan a little bit. He says that, you know, even though Peru is a neutral state and as a Spanish colony, but she has repeatedly invaded the independent Republic of Chile. And if Peru succeeds in their next attack, he fears that they're going to wipe out the promising and zealous infant Chilean Navy. Mm -hmm. Now, as, as they're talking Mr. Summers announces that the Lisbon packet has been cited with what looks like Dr. Jacob waving a red handkerchief. And Jack asks for a signal inviting them to come alongside. Ah, so here we go. New intelligence and twists and turns piling up, even as we're so close to the end of the book here. Jacob does indeed come aboard. He tells them that the act of burying Sir David before the prefect's official inquiry had given him, the prefect, the perfect excuse to start to intervene. So the prefect has ordered the surprise impounded that nightfall. Jack turns to Harding and says, okay, no shore leave, 
if any boats come close denying them admission, we're going to get ready to keep ourselves at liberty here. Jack says he himself is going aboard the packet. And seeing all of this flurry of action, Jacob thinks, well, maybe I've been too hasty. He says Colonel Valdez is marching his troops back from Concepcion. Messengers have been sent to the Supreme Director, so kind of maybe it's all going to be okay. But Jack has his plan, and he's going to spin it up into action as quickly as he can. Going aboard the packet, he goes and asks our old friend Austin Dobson whether they are headed for Panama. Dobson says, yes, they are. Two of the scientists in my party, he says, are going to catch ships leaving for England from there. Uh, by, by the way, you know, we were speculating about the connection between Dobson and the, the Northeast English um, woodcutter ornithologist called Buick. Well, here's a real connection to Buick. One of the scientists that O'Brien mentions here is named Buick. So that was a nice little little moment there. The other one's named after a, a, another famous ornithologist from later on in the 19th century, a guy called Sclater. Anyhow, Jack explains that with the likelihood of O'Higgins being overthrown and the country being thrown into anarchy and inviting a Peruvian invasion, he therefore means to sail for Callao tonight, cut out the Esmeralda, sail her back to Valparaiso and man her with the Chilean Navy men that they've trained. So although Stephen was ready to write it off and go see the birds and the beasts, Jack's got a plan for taking control of the situation. This cutting out of the Esmeralda, basically taking hold of the one remaining uncommitted pawn on the chess table of this potential revolution, this, he thinks, will give them the balance of power even before O'Higgins and the troops from Concepcion can get back. So, Mike, it's it's, it's another great moment to sort of hear the, 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 the battle drums of Jack Aubrey starting to beat a little bit here. Yeah, it really is. Well, Jack asked if the members of the Royal Society will do a couple favors for him. Will they, one, make out who wins the battle and send the results back to the Admiralty in England with the utmost dispatch, give this news to the scientists who are returning and have them deliver it to the Admiralty? And then he adds a second request. And O'Brien writes, our brother, Stephen Matron, has left all his collections at our inn in Valparaiso. I and this ship have incurred the enmity of the local authorities. I dare not let him go ashore. You, under the aegis of the Royal Society, may do so without fear. You may sup agreeably at the Agua Sevilla, gather his belongings, and so join surprise and her tender, the schooner Ringle, just a mile off the harbor at midnight. And <laughs> in your chapter. There's not a moment to lose. Right. So Gosh. a great little interchange. I mean, it's not like this was a little bit of personal reflection and some detail about the flora and fauna, Mike. This was proper plot and pr- proper new inciting action to get us moving even faster towards the end of the novel. So goodness only knows what was originally meant to happen with this interchapter thing. Right. Anyhow, Mike, it's great. We've had the occasional moment in the book so far where we thought, you know, perhaps this chapter here is a little bit slow moving, whereas this chapter here is more exciting. This is one of the exciting ones. We've got writing at the top of the quality that O'Brien can come up with. We've got all these great scenery, these great characters. We've got insights into humanity and the characters of people. We've got Cochrane-inspired naval action, all the things that have kept us reading right from the very beginning. You, you might as well say that there's some naval action perhaps coming in another chapter. So even as we get close to what we know is the end of the canon, there's still plenty to think about. 
We've got the plot still moving along and we're still enjoying that classic O'Brien storytelling. So my, my attention is still high, Mike. How about yours? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, added bonus, I'm really enjoying seeing Stephen's relationship with Christine progressing. And I'm happy to hear from her and from Bridget. And and there's a part of me, like we mentioned, other people have said too, that I wish there were many more books to come because that's a story I would really love to follow and and see come to fruition here. Um, Very good. Well, that's one of the sad things. Like I'm enjoying each chapter and each paragraph as it comes but as each storyline and each person and each situation comes past, I'm thinking, how much more am I going to be able to get of that before we get right. to the end here? So anyhow, let, let's let's stay positive. We're, we're still enjoying that progression for Stephen. We're enjoying seeing Jack Aubrey training up the Chilean seamen, training up the midshipmen as well. We're enjoying watching um, Horatio Hansen make progress. Uh, Mike, yeah, again, you think this 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 could be a new Babington. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Um, we've had a bit of time with Jack and his emotional world and the the effect that this realization has on him that he's far, far from Sophie and far, far from the children. That also has set up Stephen to keep up his commentary on men and their emotional lives and their friendships. And that's been something that's been a big part of the books that we've had a little bit less of in the last few chapters, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I, I was fascinated a number of times in this chapter. Stephen seems to be quite taken with Coca, and, and Coca comes up time and time and time again. You know, we wonder whether that, in fact, had a lot to do with his his kind of visions of Christine and his yeah. inner reverie. And when we were putting our notes together, we didn't include all these references to Coca and all the conversations with Jacob and everything. And then I, I kind of wondered, and we talked about a little bit, whether it, it was Stephen's conversation with Jacob about, you know, coca at altitude, trying to think about, is this what was causing my Christine things? But we've never really talked about it. O'Brien brings this up again and again. And at one point gave us this great list of all the substances in another prior book, you know, up that Stephen has abused or used over the years. And, and I wondered about O'Brien's interactions with mind-altering substances. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a kid of the 60s and the 70s here. Yeah. And, and I kind of was looking around going, you know, is there anything in the biographies to suggest where this part of Stephen's personality and behavior come from? And Ian, you, you did a little research on this matter. Well, it's funny. We've been talking about this, as, as you know, for many, many, many books. But I hadn't yet dug into... Um, any of the biographical sources about this. And uh, I had a quick glance through Dean King's book, uh, Patrick O'Brien, A Life Revealed, a great biography. You might say the book that really brought to the world some of the some of the real context of Patrick O'Brien and his life and what he did. And I'm not very surprised that there's no mention of O'Brien having any kind of a Coke habit on the weekends. And I, I can't imagine a culturally conservative English gentleman in the 60s and 70s living on the south coast of France, you know, having a dealer who dropped by on a moped every couple of days. Having said that, you go looking for references to cocaine in the biography, and there is a little bit of something not to do with uh, O'Brien himself, but to do with one of his most famous fans. Now, according to Dean King's book, which I've got no reason to doubt, uh, O'Brien had read a paper by Sigmund Freud written in 1884 
the title in German is Über Coca, which means about cocaine or about coca. And this paper had described the history of its use in South America and had praised the therapeutic uses of cocaine, which is the extract of the coca leaf. And Freud had expressed the hope in this paper that cocaine could cure his own friend's addiction to morphine, which is another interesting little echo of yeah. what we know about Stephen, because laudanum and morphine are more or less the same thing. Now, at the time that this was being mentioned in Dean's book, 1993 or thereabouts, Patrick O'Brien was the subject of a, a bibliography and critical appreciation. It's a collection of essays that were put together and bound up along with a formal set of bibliographic notes by the British Library, which was a great compliment for the British Library to pay to O'Brien. And it was published. Lots of the essays in this book, it's entitled Patrick O'Brien, A Bibliography and Critical Appreciations. Lots of the essays in this book have appeared as end papers or as forewords in many of the editions of the O'Brien books that you might all have by N.A.M. Roger and uh, Charlton Heston and the essay by O'Brien himself that lots of people have read. And funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, I was sent a copy of this book very kindly by a friend of my son's. If you're listening, hello, Rufus. Thank you very much. And in this book, there's an essay by a psychiatrist named Jolyon West. Jolyon West wrote an essay in this book critiquing appreciatively and praising and admiring O'Brien's account of the history and the evolution and the custom and practice of medicine and surgery in the 18th and early 19th centuries. West's essay was, as I say, in, in praise of the way all these things have been portrayed in the books, didn't go very deeply, though, into drug use. It mentioned it a couple of times. And at the time that this essay had been written by Jolyon West, O'Brien was at that point keen to get West's views on the Freud cocaine paper. Now, when you dig into Dr. Julian West's career and publication history, Mike, you can see why. And this was the rabbit hole that I spent some time digging through yesterday. Uh, Julian West was an expert on drug usage, he being a psychiatrist, an expert on drug usage, especially in the context of brainwashing in the military. He had done some work funded by the CIA on hypnosis and suggestibility following an investigation that he supported into the use of sleep deprivation as a torture technique by Chinese interrogators of US POWs in the Korean War. He had studied drug use in the San Francisco hippie culture in the late 1960s. And again, there's a suggestion that that work might have been funded by the CIA. And Julian West also notoriously took part in an experiment that was fully written up and published at the time, which involved administering LSD and antipsychotic drugs to an elephant, which subsequently died. And the experimenters administered LSD to two further elephants to prove that it wasn't the LSD that had killed them. Now, Julian West had all sorts of other interesting and bizarre things in his professional history. He was the psychiatrist that evaluated the mental state of Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby, the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald, the presumed assassin of uh, John F. Kennedy. He had evaluated Jack Ruby's mental state after Ruby's address and had recommended to the court that Ruby be interrogated under the influence of sodium thiopental and hypnosis. Oh, you wouldn't do that these days. West was the court-appointed expert who had looked into the brainwashing and coercion possibilities in the case of the Patty Hearst trial in 1976 and, and all other kinds of crazy experimental 1970s druggy hypnosis-y psychiatry that Julian West was you know, seriously and genuinely engaged upon as a researcher, but which read a little oddly to us as we look back now 50 years later. <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So, Mike, I, I find myself wondering, having read all of this, how come Patrick O'Brien was in correspondence about Freud's writings on cocaine with somebody like West in the early 90s? And it's really fascinating to speculate. I wonder whether O'Brien had maybe, let's, let's take O'Brien's main history, Birds and Beasts, maybe O'Brien had come across a reference to the uh, LSD elephant experiment and probably been outraged by it, but fascinated and had reached out and then ended up as a kind of correspondent with, uh, with Dr. West. There's some more seriously weird stuff in West's career. We'll, we'll post a link to his Wikipedia page on our socials. And uh, it, was, it was quite the rabbit hole, Mike. I enjoyed that. Right, right. I, I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated. Talking about rabbit holes and unusual things in this chapter and everything. We kind of mentioned it you know, during the summary of the, of the, the chapter and the inner chapter here. Lindsay's arc kind of surprised me a little bit. Like you said, not not expected here. And I, I yeah. thought to myself, it was either a really well set up red herring, or yeah. I wondered if perhaps it was something that O'Brien was going to do more with, but decided not to. Yeah. And I know we we tried to dig in a little bit to kind of, you know, what were some of Cochrane's rivals like? There were real naval rivals there. And, and I wonder, like you said, while he has kind of picked the bones of history here a little bit, it's clear that this story is not like the earlier things where he's really completely staying true to the factual history and inserting our characters in. Right. And so I, I, you know, I think Lindsay was, you know, turned out to be a bit of a literary device and it was just very short lived and surprised here. But he's the kind of person that you kind of wish, Oh, I would have loved to have heard more of the, the dialogue and the rivalry and the posturing between him and Jack Aubrey. Right. Right. Anyhow, it's it's great to see the naval action. It's great, as we've said, to see Jack Aubrey back commanding and planning. It sounds like, Mike, and especially if you look at the page count, it sounds like we're heading for some kind of a conclusion. But with all that's happened, you're still open to guess as a reader, I think, what kind of a conclusion it's going to be. Jack intends to take matters into his own hand and take out this primary naval asset of the Peruvian Navy, the Esmeralda. The, the plan sounds a great one. It sounds audacious. And it, it, it sounds like a real high point. And speaking of high points, once again, Mike, let's let's, let's say happy holidays to the listeners. Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. Ian. I, I don't think either one of us could have imagined a couple of years back that we'd be sitting here recording for Christmas Eve 2023. Amazing. Uh, this this episode here at the end of uh, or towards the end of of the last book here of the canon. So absolutely, we wish you all happy holidays. We hope that you're enjoying the season. We hope your planned festivities are going splendidly, even if we can't say for sure the same for Jack and Stephen here. We do know that for characters in the Patrick O'Brien world, sometimes things don't go quite to plan, even sometimes they don't get to initiate the plan they have at all. So with all this political uncertainty on the ground, who knows what's going to happen in chapter 10? I guess... Ian, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart, a Merry Christmas.
I am in that mood yeah. today. That's good. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate What's the it. phrase that you used earlier on? Agitating up their persons and their limbs enough <laughs> to make one right. retire to a monastery. That's me. <laughs> <laughs>